When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome to Herd Tell. It is a Wednesday. It is August the 17th. Year of our Lord 2022 just continues to roll right along indomitably, as our friends overseas would say. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us for Herd Tell. Got some things we want to turn the noise down on today. We got a great piece from a very good friend of the program, Jenny Coulter. She is talking about the broken chain of custody in election equipment. This is something that's been a hot topic. It's the folks with stolen elections want to talk about, but the people who are really worried about security think that they probably made the situation not only bad, but irrevocably worse. We're going to read from her piece here in just a little bit from securethevote.org. Also, um, over in India, they are celebrating their independence. 75 years will go to Prime Minister Modi's speech. Some of the things he said that are very interesting in one of the really important countries in the world's players, uh, a country that will be probably the largest country by population, maybe as early as next year, and is the world's largest democracy. And of course, an ally of ours. We need to pay attention to India. We will talk about that piece in just a little bit. Also, uh, our last segment, um, unfortunately, my home state, West Virginia, suffered some more flash flooding, but we got a great story of West Virginia's doing what they always do, coming together, helping each other out. In this case, a barbecue restaurant owner taking it upon himself to make sure donated items get where they need to go in his own community. Our guest today on the program, uh, Christopher Barnard. Uh, great to have him back on the program. Hadn't talked to him in a while. Been back in the radio days last time we spoke. He's got a piece out on green energy in Europe. We're also going to talk about energy policy. He grew up in Europe, then came here. I grew up here, went over there. We're going to try to bring a little perspective on how energy is seen. Also, the practical way Europe is set up, how that affects their policy. Of course, the rebirth of interest in nuclear power due to the consequences of the Ukraine war and Russia's aggression and militarizing gas and natural gas and oil against Europe. We're going to talk about all that with Chris, with Christopher Barnard here in just a little bit. Great guest. Excited to have him back. Another great Young Voices contributor. But first, let's talk about follow the money. One of our principles here is always when you want the truth on something, follow the money. Because people usually spend money on things that are important or they do it foolishly. But either which way, you find out what's going on when you follow the money. Politico has an interesting story that I think needs the noise turned down on it just a little bit. Headline, GOP slashes ads in key Senate battlegrounds. Um, from the piece, the cuts totaling roughly $13 million since 1 August. Comes the Republican Senate campaign committee is being forced to, quote, stretch every dollar we can. A person familiar with the NRSC's deliberation. Now, quick note here, this is the Republican Senatorial Committee. So we're dealing with Senate races. Um, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina, places the GOP must defend this fall, have failed to raise enough money to get on the air themselves, requiring the NRSC to make cuts elsewhere to accommodate. Since August 1, the NRSC has cut ad buys in the battleground states of Pennsylvania, Arizona, Wisconsin, and Nevada, and they're also, according to AdTrack, separately, Democrats source tracking advertising buys estimated roughly $10 million in cuts by the NRSC since the first of the month. People are asking, what the hell is going on? One strategist said, why are we cutting in August? I've never seen that. Well, the scale of the cuts is unprecedented. The NRSC 
is ahead of its typical schedule, actually, so it's not as bad as it sounds. Uh, Senator Rick Scott, who's the chair of this, like we said, announced earlier this year the campaign committee would be spending sooner than in years past. It was a necessary change, quote, we've been creative in how we spend our money and we'll continue to make sure we spend every dollar of it by the NRSC is done with the most efficient and effective way possible. But a person familiar with the NRSC's deliberation said the committee is swapping some of its independent expenditure spending for coordinated and hybrid spending campaigns. The latter category imposes more rules on how much can be spent and which ads can stay, though it allows the committee to purchase ad time at a candidate discount. But the numbers show the NRSC has cut significantly more than it has booked back, indicating a potential cash strain. Okay, so where's this coming from? Well, let's stop right there and look at a couple things. Where are these states that they're having problems in? Pennsylvania. Well, that's Dr. Oz's race. He won his primary, and he's currently losing in the polls by about 10 points to John Fetterman, who, remember, had a bad health scare, who has had a little bit of a shaky return to the campaign, but has opened a very comfortable lead on Dr. Oz, who has all kinds of problematic things like voting in a Turkish election, having ties to the dictator Erdogan over there, and also the fact that he's just a really bad campaigner. He doesn't seem to be doing anything very productive here. Plus, there's the fact that he doesn't even live in Pennsylvania. Now, that hasn't stopped people from getting elected before, but the Fetterman campaign has done a real good job of highlighting that. Oz, reportedly, isn't putting any of his own money into this thing. So I don't really blame them for holding back on a candidate that looks like he's going to lose, looks like he may lose handily, and doesn't want to put any of his own skin in the game. So I don't really blame them on that one. Now it gets interesting, though. Arizona and Nevada. These are two seats that are very much competitive. Now, out in Arizona, something to pay very close attention to is Blake Masters is the Senate nominee for the GOP. He'll be going up against incumbent Senator Mark Kelly. And Mark Kelly, on the down low, and it hasn't made as much headlines, has been an absolute money-making machine when it comes to political fundraising. He has tons of cash on hand. He has almost unlimited funds to spend on this race. And the Democratic Party is hell-bent on keeping this particular seat. Meanwhile, Masters is a very problematic candidate. He's got a lot of stuff in his bag of things from his history that would make great ad fodder. And when you're coming up against somebody like Mark Kelly that's got a ton of money, all that bad press, all those questionable things, all those questionable statements, they're going to start showing up in ads, especially in a battleground state like Arizona. And we also know all the craziness surrounding Arizona. Same thing up in Nevada. It's a tight race. It could be one. It could go either way. And a big expenditure of money could go into that. These things don't tell us everything when it comes to these races. There's a lot going on. Again, historically, the Republicans should do really well. But there's a lot of things we don't know. What's the economy going to be doing? It's bad right now or perceived to be bad. How's it going to look in October and November when people go to the polls and start doing their early voting? If it's still bad, that's probably bad for Democrats. If it's good, it might ease the pain. If they lose the House by 20 seats as opposed to 30 seats or more or less and overperform from what people think the Democratic Party does, does that raise up some of these senatorial candidates? And then there's the things like Dr. Oz, like some of these other senatorial candidates that are highly problematic. If you run bad candidates, it doesn't matter if cyclically you should do well. The voters may not go your way. There's a lot of moving parts here. And of course, the biggest moving part is nobody knows what Donald Trump's going to do. And when you're talking GOP politics, Whatever Donald Trump does is probably going to have a big effect here. So the money isn't everything, but it's telling you something. The Senate folks like Rick Scott, who, by the way, is making no bones about the fact that he would like to be president, too, like too many senators, although he has no chance at all of being one. They're telling you something with their advice here. It's not a nothing, but it is a something. Like we started out saying, it's always good to follow the money usually gets you to something that leads you to some at least partially true. More Hertel right after this. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. 
Join Planet Fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, we always talk about turning down the news on things. Election security is one of those things that needs noise turned down because that has been co-opted for a lot of bad faith folks. And folks that actually care about election security seem to be having a hard time talking about it in a proper manner without getting stuck in the conspiracy theory nonsense some other folks have been flooding the zone with. Our good friend, Genya Coulter, she's been on the program multiple times. She was the very first Heard Tell guest. She was the very first guest on Heard Tell when we switched to the current itineration of the daily weekly program. So we always love getting her opinion on things. She's writing at trustthevote.org on chain of custody in elections. And I want to read you a little piece of it. We've also reached out to her. Hope to get her on the program to talk about this soon. But uh, this is Genya writing. Perhaps the bluster and ineptitude were a well-rehearsed act to blend in with the misguided true believers that were irresistible clickbait for the media to exploit. In a stroke of luck, for their well-intentioned but nevertheless illegal efforts, the roving groups of so-called auditors were able to recruit a handful of election administrators who had either gone rogue and being consumed by the fever of false quest for truth or were overly naive about the ulterior motives of the instigators. At some point, the chain snapped, meaning the chain of custodies. Tabulators, ballot marking devices, electronic election management systems, workstations, electronic poll books, USB drives, servers, modems, compact flashcards, were suddenly all fair game to access, sometimes without authorization from any of the proper channels. They began to disappear into the dark of night, sneaked out in empty shopping mall parking lots, transferred at a truck stop, disassembled in motels and short-term rental residence, and even remote cabins several states away from where the equipment actually belonged. Some equipment was returned within weeks. Some would be missing in action for months. If there was any official paper trail for the election equipment during their long, strange trip, it wouldn't matter. The so-called forensic auditors, again in quotes because that's not what these folks were, believe they're under no legal obligation to begin or maintain any chain of custody documentation. That wasn't their job. The parties who were legally obligated to maintain custodial control of all voting system components, along with accompanying records of the election, were the town and county clerks who neglected their duty to the voters in their jurisdictions. Those voters understood their tax dollars will be used to cover the cost of equipment, investigations, and billable overtime, and they are well aware of the unfairness of the situation. None of the equipment was examined can ever be used any longer with any trust or certainty because nobody knows who is actually examining it and or the software. Where testing took place, or even what time of day the audit took place, as system clocks and multiple tabulators were manually reset multiple times. And that expensive proprietary technology was returned with broken tamper evidence seals, physical damage, and falsified, quote, official ballots tallied in the machine's protected count that were not on the proper ballot stock or printed property listing. Less than a decade ago, the most brilliant minds working in the field of voting system security had to politely beg election officials and haunt eBay in order to access equipment for their original academic research. They were not well treated by most of the election administrating and voter vendoring communities, and their insights came at a significant cost of time and talent could have easily been applied to more lucrative pursuits. The fallout from the recent Michigan fiasco is a slap in the face to the election security communities, members of this organization included that she's writing for at trustthevote.org, who invest years of hard work and did everything they could to remain within law, only to see their research misappropriated and weaponized by mercenary political operatives who traveled the path in no resistance and were granted unfettered access to voting equipment for months unchecked. The damage done to the ever-cordoning chain of American democracy goes far beyond broken temper evidence seals and damaged ports. A growing number, and dare we report a majority of Americans, no longer trust the election process. They fear a foreign influence has been replaced by domestic and insider threats, and the genuine patriots tasked with election cybersecurity will need to leap through flaming hoops in order to be granted any type of access to a tabulator or source code. This is a chain we should never wish to break those responsible for the hot mess that they have wrought the linkage is snapped all for the purported patriotic purpose of revealing evidence of a quote-unquote stolen election that was not have ironically compromised the very thing they purported to want to protect may those responsible have their day in court their cases fully heard their convictions fairly adjudicated and then may they never 
may they be met with the full force and extent of punishment the law allows. That's our friend Jenny Coulter writing at trustthevote.org on the broken chain of custody and some of the election nonsense. We'll link to the piece, read the entire thing herself, follow her work. We look forward to getting her back on the program. More her tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, it's been a while since we've seen him, but we're thrilled to have him back. Another of our great Young Voices contributors, Christopher Barnyard, London School of Economics guy. Again, they don't let people just walk in there. That's a very prestigious school. He's got all kinds of great writing credits, including this piece in the Wall Street Journal somewhere I haven't got into yet, but I'm going to keep trying real hard at it. Uh, Chris, great seeing you again, my friend. How have you been, sir? Yeah, been good. Thanks for having me on. Fantastic. Good to see you again. Uh, half American and half Belgium and lived in Europe. Glory, what a combination. Yeah, no, it's been it's been uh, interesting moving from from Europe and then to the UK and then to the US. So it's been a it's been a whirlwind. Let's actually just start there for a second before we get into the nuclear stuff, because um, people are always wanting to compare America and Europe when it comes to things like energy policy, nuclear policy, things like this. I was the reverse. I grew up in America. And then when I was in the military, I lived in Germany two different times. So I got to see it from that respect. Talk about that real quick, though, especially since you do political and cultural commentary now, how that shapes you when you go overseas, in your case, live overseas and then come over here, how that shapes you and changes kind of a broader perspective, because I know that really, really changed how I saw the world. Yeah, of course. I think one of the interesting things about growing up in Europe is obviously the countries are so much smaller and so you're much more exposed to different cultures very quickly. So I grew up speaking three languages and was just very much uh, directly confronted with other cultures and visiting other countries, whereas America as a country is the size of a continent. Um, and when it comes to to something like energy policy, I think that also has an impact, whereas in the US you have abundant natural resources that really we've been able to tap and, and has helped America become the superpower in the world. Um, in Europe, you you countries are smaller. You have fewer resources. There's more demand. Like there's more competition between should this be agricultural land, should this be energy production, should this be homes, whatever it might be. Um, and I think as a result, in a way, politicians have actually um, become quite idealistic rather than realistic when it comes to these kinds of things. And so instead of um, understanding that, for example, with energy, that producing your energy is is a good thing, like the U.S. has done. They've, they've actually been overly idealistic about that and said, oh, we can just import it from other places. It just happened to be that a lot of the energy they've been importing has been from Russia or from the Middle East, uh, places like that. Now that's starting to shift to America. But the reality is that a lot of Europe is reliant on other countries rather than on themselves for their energy. And they're starting to feel the feel the pinch of that. I actually think it's important that we start there because something that people miss out when they compare America and Europe is exactly what you were saying. When you live there, like, you know, it's a five hour drive for me to go to another state in some places in America, if not further. Five hour drive when I lived in Frankfurt, man, I could be I could be in Holland. I could be in Paris. I could be down in the Alps in the Tyrol. Like it's like going state to state over there. So I think you hit on something here when we're talking about European policies like energy. You need to not think of it as other countries the way we do in America. Where we're more isolated. It really is like states. They're more compact. They're more. This has a practical effect on how their policy is. I think that's something maybe the American audience and the Western audience misses out on how Europe does stuff. Is that a fair way to put it, you think? Yeah, I think absolutely. And, and the smallness, um, really like the competition for land is a huge thing. In America, if you look at Texas, which is uh, obviously the biggest oil and gas producer in the U.S., it's an enormous state. It's like a state almost like the size of like half of Europe, pretty much. Whereas in, in Europe, like Belgium, where I grew up, is one of the most densely populated countries in the world because of how small it is and how many people there are. So it's obviously not as easy to just go and uh, have vast swathes of land to explore your natural resources. You have other demands for it. And I think that's a, a huge factor in Europe. Let's talk nuclear real quick because it's all over the headlines. 
not because of nuclear, but because of the alternatives. We know what's going on in Ukraine, the illegal war of aggression that Vladimir Putin is doing. Vladimir Putin is weaponizing. He's doing this because of that energy. We have the data now. They're still making money on their energy exports, even with the war in Ukraine, which is just a startling statistic. But everything that's going on geopolitically right now is because winter is coming. General Winter, we always talked about the Russian army's greatest general, General Winter. This is a new twist on that because he's using energy, but that didn't happen in a vacuum. That happened in a sequence. And when it comes to Western Europe, the old Western bloc, they kind of set themselves up to get in this predicament, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, there there really has been a, a very deliberate and strategic effort by Russia to make the European continent um, and especially the EU dependent on Russian fossil fuels. So you saw a lot of countries like Germany um, started kind of closing down their natural gas production. They started closing down their nuclear plants um, and they, they figured, well, well, we'll replace that with renewables. Uh, and if not renewables, we'll just buy oil and gas from somewhere else, in this case, Russia. But the interesting thing is that there's actually a lot of reports coming out that um, the Russians and, and kind of the, the Russian uh, propaganda machine is, is very good at infiltrating countries and spreading disinformation and kind of actually supporting causes that would be damaging to those other countries. And we actually found a lot of uh, evidence that Russia has been involved in funding anti-nuclear and anti-natural gas campaigners um, across Europe because it suits Russia for these countries to become reliant on Russia rather than on themselves. And so what we've seen right now is uh, Russia has been building up reserves of of money uh, for a while now where they knew when they invaded Ukraine there would be the inevitable consequences, sanctions, economic isolation, all that uh, stuff. But because they have such a stranglehold energy-wise over Europe, They've uh, been able to weather those consequences, and that's been a very strategic and deliberate effort. Yeah, and to the point, I talked about living in Germany. The first time I lived in Germany, Gerhard Schroeder was the chancellor of Germany. He was on the board of one of the Russian uh, energy companies, and a lot of malfeasance there that we now goes back a ways. This is very deliberate. It's strategic, but, and you've touched in it on your piece in the Wall Street Journal. We're going to link to it. Please read the entire piece. Make sure you share it with your friends. This is starting to cause some movement in some very unexpected places in Europe. Germany's still dragging their feet. Of course, Schultz is still new to office, so that's a little bit different situation. Belgium, you talk about their Green Party. The Dutch, who are always very, very uh, environmentally conscious, they're starting to make some noise. Talk about some of the other countries that we don't often talk about in geopolitics, but we're seeing some movements on the energy front here, aren't we? Yeah, we are, and really... What, what we're seeing is we're seeing three crises come together. We're seeing kind of the geopolitical crisis of what's happening in Ukraine, and we've talked about that. You're seeing a little bit of an economic crisis right now. Um, the Biden administration doesn't want to admit that we're in a recession, but we are pretty much in a recession. And um, economically, with inflation, gas prices, um, a lot of the West is and around the world is, is hurting. So there's this economic crisis. Uh, but then the third crisis is... Um, kind of our, our targets to tackle climate change and to reduce our emissions and to move towards cleaner energy. And for a long time, countries were overly idealistic about how we could uh, continue having strong economies, being um, uh, energy independent, but then also tackling climate change. And the reality is by shutting down natural gas, by shutting down nuclear plants and relying on fo Russian fossil fuels, you're not going to achieve that. And so a lot of countries like uh, Belgium, like the Netherlands, uh, but really countries all over the world have been forced to realize that if they want to have a stable and secure supply of energy, they want it to be clean and they want to strengthen their economies, they can't do that without nuclear power. Yeah. Put your Belgium hat on for just a second. Uh, of course, Brussels is the center of the EU, so it's a little bit different beast anyway. But a country like Brussels or like, uh, you know, the Netherlands that aren't on the front lines of the Ukraine stuff, but they're intricately tied to the rest of Europe. What are the common folks there thinking about all this right now? Because they they think differently than Americans. We're very independently thought. Europe is a little different. They understand that this is all interconnected beyond the headlines and the noise of it. How are they seeing this situation? Like you said, this is actually three crises kind of meeting at the middle on a lot of things. This is stuff they know these are crises like they don't this isn't a surprise to any of them. What are they thinking as they look at this environment right now? 
Well, I think the the evidence from from Belgium and also at the Netherlands because they're two very similar countries, and and my my father's actually Dutch, so I, I know both countries pretty well. Uh, but what they're what they're seeing right now is obviously they're shocked at what's happening in Ukraine, um, and then I can imagine from the U.S. it's a little further for us to look at this, be like, oh well, like that's a terrible thing, but we're still like a continent and an ocean away. But if you're in Belgium and if you're in the, in the Netherlands, you're still actually like relatively close to um, to like what's happening. And, and uh, obviously Belgium and the Netherlands were were important scenes in, in both world wars that happened on the European continent. So they're certainly kind of spooked about this. But at the same time, they're, they're seeing um, really the reality of bad energy policy come to fruition. Um, prices, energy prices are going up immensely. Inflation is up immensely. Um, they're not even sure they'll have enough energy reserves to get through the winter. Um, and at the same time, they don't want to fund the war machine of Vladimir Putin. Um, and so what's happened in Belgium is uh, the Green Party um, had been campaigning very heavily to shut down Belgium's remaining nuclear reactors. Um, the Green parties around the world tend to be pretty anti-nuclear, which which is something I don't really understand, but uh, but they are. And they just realized that, well, if we want to make sure we don't buy Russian fossil fuels and we want to make sure that we're tackling climate change and our people have affordable energy, we have to keep these nuclear plants open. So the, the Belgian Green Party did a huge U-turn um, and are extending the life of the country's remaining two reactors uh, by a decade now. Um, the Netherlands, uh, which uh, also is experiencing these war-induced energy short shortages, um, are now actually hoping to construct two new plants and they're actually pressuring the German government to try and keep their plants open. So you're kind of seeing this interesting movement in European politics towards understanding that you really can't do any of these things without nuclear energy. Yeah, and the attitude, the attitude is important here because we know the policy arguments, we know the environmental arguments, we know the fiscal arguments. But at the core of this, people just have a weird thing with nuclear for whatever reason. And you covered in your piece, of course, Fukushima in Europe. Of course, there's plenty of people with lived experience with Chernobyl where they thought that might do really bad damage to Europe and did in some respects. Uh, of course, Three Mile Island here in America, even though that was actually a success story when you actually dig into the technicals of it. People are just weird about nuclear. Is that attitude change is going to be just as important as any ideological or policy pitches right because the people's got to be ready to move there to move on it right yeah i mean you kind of see that in germany actually right now is because of the current crisis germans are realizing that the situation they have right now which is really untenable and so opinion polling in germany has actually shifted to the extent that a majority of germans right now support keeping their last nuclear plants open um the cdu the the party that actually campaigned under angela merkel and then successfully uh, agreed on the legislation to shut down all of the nuclear plants in Germany, they now are publicly saying, maybe we should keep them open. And obviously they're, they're, they're no longer solely in power. And so you have, you have the coalition government there, which is still very much kind of uh, against this idea of keeping the nuclear plants open. But really what you're seeing is that uh, in places like Germany, places like Belgium, public opinion is starting to turn to in favor of nuclear energy simply because they're being forced to. Yeah. Christopher Barnard uh, joining us on Hertel. We're going to get more into the nuclear part of this. We're going to continue to talk about his great piece in Wall Street Journal. It's not just Europe, uh, Asia and the Pacific Rim. A lot of questions about nuclear right here in the U.S. We're going to come closer to home, talk about some things, including current legislation up for debate. Might be some movement towards nuclear. Going to be talking about that. Christopher Barnard, Young Voices contributor, great writer, great guy. Going to continue with him on Young Voices right after this. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played.
Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Christopher Barnard's joining us, a great Young Voices contributor. Happy to have him. He's writing in the Wall Street Journal about nuclear power and the energy crisis. Worldwide energy crisis is no other way to put it because we're seeing it all over the place. Um, let's go to the Pacific Rim for a second. Uh, we see what's happening in Sri Lanka. Tangentially, we see what's happening in Africa. When when you can't get oil and gas into a country, really bad, ugly things happen in a hurry. Japan's a lot more stable, of course, but they have that specter of Fukushima. But even with Japan, they're now talking about, and you know, we have the Godzilla culture, of course, which Godzilla is the metaphor for screwing around with splitting the atom and blah, blah, blah. Even they are like, okay, we've got to get serious about this nuclear thing. That's kind of a title shift, isn't it? Yeah, it is absolutely, and and you know, with with the the accident in Fukushima was uh, what many countries around the world experienced as a wake up call as to the dangers of nuclear power. But as you mentioned earlier, actually, similar to Three Mile Island, Fukushima was in many ways actually a success story for nuclear energy. No one died from the nu- from the reactor meltdown. the The only people that that died were from from the uh, the forced evacuation, and unfortunately. But that had mostly to do with a tsunami, not with the kind of inherent dangers of nuclear energy. Um, but it spooked a lot of countries. So Japan kind of fully denuclearized. Uh, it inspired countries like Germany to also denuclearize. But what, we, what you're seeing right now because of this crisis, um, the, the Japanese energy minister recently uh, admitted that their 2030 climate emissions goal is based on restarting up to 30 nuclear reactors. Um, just by this winter, they bring they they plan to bring nine nuclear reactors fully online so that they have enough energy to get through the winter. And so you're really seeing that the country that almost led this denuclearization, this kind of nuclear phobia around the world, is actually the one that is turning to nuclear out of necessity um, faster than anyone could have imagined. It's not just Japan, which is, of course, one of the leading economies and leading technology uh, countries emerging uh, economies, Indonesia, Vietnam, the Philippines, they're all investing in nuclear energy. Uh, there's also a subheading here, though, because one of the world we talk about nuclear energy as being a clean fuel. And we should because I don't I don't think you can honestly talk about environmentalism without talking about nuclear energy. I just don't think you can. But one of the world's greatest polluters in China, they're actually quietly starting to fund a lot of these foreign uh, new nuclear energy products. That's going to be an interesting dynamic to keep an eye on, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think really what China is realizing as well is that um, reliable, affordable, clean energy is crucially important in the future. And no other source of energy provides it as well as nuclear does. And so they're investing hugely in building nuclear plants in the U.S. Um, They've got hundreds of nuclear plants planned or that are already being constructed. Uh, but they're not just doing it in the U.S. They're doing it in other countries as well, because they're realizing that if they can make these other countries reliant on Chinese built energy infrastructure, then the Chinese government has enormous leverage over them. Very similarly to the leverage that Putin has over 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 Europe right now. And so really, we're seeing that um, China, a country that everyone looks to as like the worst emitter in terms of uh, carbon dioxide, is now also one of the biggest investors in clean energy in the world. And we simply can't afford to fall behind on that. Yeah, let's bring this home to America. You just talked about Japan building uh, more nuclear reactors. They want to build 12 of them. Uh, The opposite is true here. We're closing them. Since 2012, we've closed a slew of them. California is down to one. Diablo Canyon is actually the picture on your piece in the Wall Street Journal. Now, uh, even California, as far left as it can get sometimes, they're even like, no, 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 don't shut this thing down. You're going to crash the economy. Uh, what has, we understand the three mile Island stuff. This has really been mostly regulatory, uh, crushing of an industry. When we talk about nuclear power, why we haven't built new ones since basically the seventies. Right. Yeah. I mean, there was obviously after, after Chernobyl and then after Fukushima, there's, there were just, was a lot of apprehension uh, after obviously three mile Island as well. A lot of apprehension about nuclear energy in the U S and so you have the, 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 regulatory agency in charge of this, which is called the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, And for a 30-year period um, between the 1970s and 2012, they didn't approve a single new nuclear reactor license, which meant that we didn't build any new nuclear. We weren't expanding or modernizing this crucial energy infrastructure. Um, And and even for the, the reactors that have been approved since, 
Um, it takes years and millions of dollars to get anything through the NRC. Um, recently, there's a, a company called NewScale, which I also mentioned in the article. Uh, they're building a small modular reactor. In fact, the first commercial um, small modular reactor. But it took them six years and a 12,000 page application to get through the NRC. And they reported that it, they estimate it costs about half a billion dollars for them to um, get their application and design certified. And that's just incredibly burdensome on any company that wants to build new technology and that wants to expand infrastructure in this country. Um, and so we need to look at expanding uh, of um, making these timelines much faster, expediting the approval, but also making these regulations um, much more sensible so that we're not holding back this crucial energy source. And even with all Christopher Barnard joining us, even with all of that, we are seeing billions of investment in nuclear right now. Small modular reactors are kind of the hot ticket right now. Next generation, uh, they're trying. There's actually quite a bit of research into some stuff that's not ready to build, but off in the foreseeable horizon in the area of nuclear, especially you know being able to maybe put it in like rural areas, things like this, a little bit more portable stuff. Uh, Bill Gates is involved in this. New scales involved in this. There's still, even with all that going on, I got to imagine if they're pouring billions into it, even with all that upfront cost you just talked about, even a modest change in regulatory would probably really open the floodgates on this, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, like you say, the private sector is very interested in investing in this. And also, uh, to to the Biden administration's credit, they have been openly pro-nuclear. Um, and you do have kind of a little bit more of a pro-nuclear bipartisan consensus on Capitol Hill. And so there are uh, a lot of bills talking about how can we incentivize this? How can we um, make sure that uh, we're leveling the playing field between different energy sources? Because the reality is that nuclear is been left behind with a lot of policies that have come out of out of D.C. And so I, I do think it is it is very positive and many companies are investing billions into this advanced technology, including fusion technology, uh, which is very exciting. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very bullish on nuclear, but there are some important policy steps that need to be taken um, to ensure that we can actually build and build on time. You touched on it in your piece because you talked about anti-nuclear activists. How much of this is a cultural generational thing? Because we're now 30 some years post Cold War. People aren't growing up. Most of the, you know, 30s and 40s and early 50s working adults, they didn't grow up under the fear of a nuclear weapon dropping out of the sky on them as the previous generation did. They didn't really grow up uh, with a working knowledge, a fear of this stuff the way the previous generation did. You talk about the nuclear activists. That just isn't really that much of a thing now because people... I think are a little more informed, like we spoke about, about there's just no way you're going to have more electric everything without more electricity. And if you're going to have clean electricity, there's nothing better than nuclear. How much of this do you think is just going to be kind of a generational shift where the new generation doesn't have the priors and they have a little bit more knowledge of how it works? Is that kind of the thing that's tipping this all of a sudden, do you think? I think it's a little bit of that. I, I definitely like the polling does show that younger people tend to be more positive towards nuclear energy. Interestingly, men tend to be twice as likely to support nuclear energy as women. Um, but broadly speaking, there is that generational gap, uh, which I do think plays a role in this. Uh, but I also think like uh, what I was talking about before, just reality, just like cold, brutal, hard reality is forcing people to to accept that this is something we need to consider, even if they might be apprehensive about some of the risks. And so you see uh, Senator, Di Senator Dianne Feinstein from California was anti-nuclear for a lot of her career, wanted Diablo Canyon to shut down, and she's an older lady, and now she wants Diablo Canyon to stay alive because she realizes it's our only option. Um, so that is really a, a, an important factor. And the final thing I'll mention is with these next generation nuclear designs and reactors um the small modular reactors is designs by new scale or terra power which is bill gates's company or even oklo which are building they're building a, a micro reactor which is even smaller um i think the image of nuclear as an old outdated technology is changing to something that is forward looking that is exciting that is innovative um and i think that as we build more and more of those reactors and that's more the image of nuclear you have to look up some of the images of the of the designs it looks super cool and futuristic I think that's going to help uh, change some of the public perception as well. Also, let's go to a practical level to wrap this up, because this is a lot of theory and this is a lot of, you know, geopolitics and things like that. And people can kind of get lost in it. If you could do these small scale nuclear reactors, 
I'm thinking places like Appalachia. I'm thinking about the West where the uh, population is very diverse and you need, you know, just the physical moving of energy between two places, you know, you lose a lot of it. Um, the Pacific Northwest, places like this that have environmental issues. If you could get these small scale reactors into these local communities, what a game changer, not just environmentally, but also potentially economically, because now all of a sudden a place like Appalachia, you could get people in there that want to run businesses because their energy would be a lot cheaper. You could get them out in the Middle West where all that land you were talking about that's so controversial, plenty of it out there and cheap, relatively speaking. On a practical level, this could be a very important cultural, communal, and also economic thing for these communities, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and there's a really interesting st statistic, which is that um, for old coal plants that are shutting down, 75% of the skills necessary to run a coal plant are directly transferable to running a nuclear plant. And so you have, like you, you mentioned, Appalachia and, and West Virginia, um, but also some places out west in Colorado and Wyoming and et cetera, you have old, old coal plants that are being shut down partly because of economic reasons, partly because of climate and pollution reasons. And there's still that infrastructure. There's still that, that skill set. There's a community built around it. And if you can transfer that community to uh, retrofitting a nuclear plant, uh, a small modular reactor on that old coal plant, 75% of those skills are transferable. So those people can, can learn the extra skills and just be directly plugged in to what they've been doing for a long time, which is supporting uh, energy in their community. And that's an incredible economic boom, but also it'll help with a lot of the the um, mental health and, and other problems that we're seeing in a lot of those communities that are being left behind. The final thing I'll say on that is uh, states are starting to wake up to that. West Virginia recently repealed its ban on nuclear energy. Um, uh, there's Idaho, which are building uh, new scales reactors. You have uh, Wyoming, which is commissioned a study into retrofitting um, coal plants with nuclear energy. Um, and then I actually testified in front of the Colorado Senate a few months ago uh, in favor of a bill that was being introduced to perform a similar study in Colorado about the, the future of small modular reactors. Unfortunately, the, the bill got uh, tanked by some anti-nuclear uh, Democrats in, in the Colorado uh, legislature, but I'm sure they'll reintroduce it and hopefully there'll be another opportunity to kind of show how important this is. And given the current context, it stands a better chance of passing this time. Yeah, Christopher Barnard, uh, outstanding stuff today. Uh, let's get to the really important issue here, though. Uh, this is a heavy topic, but there's something more important. You're half American, half Belgium. I've got a foolproof way to know which half overtakes the other half here. Um, Pomate Fritz, are we going mayonnaise or ketchup? Got to be ketchup. Oh, so the American side wins out. Uh, that's French fries for those of you from Logan. Don't know <laughs> what we're talking about. These things are amazing. But over there, if you order fries, you get mayonnaise with them. They don't give you ketchup, do they? So I was really curious. Well, interestingly, there's a there's a type of ketchup which actually came out of Germany, but it's very popular in the Netherlands and Belgium as well, which is called curry ketchup. Which yes. Is spicier form of ketchup, and that's the best. I've got it. Uh, I got the green topped ones, though, because that red top one's a little rough with all my GI issues, but I've got it in the cabinet. I got to get it off Amazon. I love me curry ketchup. I love to throw, a, especially like a bratwurst or something on a bun with curry ketchup. Exactly. That's the stuff. Big fan of curry ketchup, something I brought back from Germany. Uh, Works is the brand, I believe. But yeah, make sure you get the green one. The red one's got a little kick to it, uh, the red cap <laughs> ones. But uh, yes, sir, that's in my pantry right now, I promise you. Christopher Barnard, we're going to have you back. Uh, fantastic information. Love talking to you. This topic is just, I, I especially like, like we said, winter's coming. This is going to be a big, big topic as winter rolls around. Let folks know where they can follow you until we get you back on Herdtel again, your social media, where you're writing and what you've got going on, my friend. Sure. So you can follow me on my Twitter at uh, Chris Barnard DL. Um, so you can just see a lot of my writing will be there. Also, the organization I work for, the American Conservation Coalition. Um, you can look, look us up uh, online. Also on Twitter, it's ACC underscore national. Um, so a lot of our, our work will be there. And yeah, we're, we're just very excited about promoting nuclear in the future, but also just broad common sense energy and climate policies that balance economic prosperity with protecting the environment. I think that's something that most Americans can get behind. So uh, yeah, check us out and uh, and support us if you want. Yeah, we've had a couple of folks associated with ACC on. They're always great. Uh, that old term we used to use, stewardship of the environment, it's something that's catching on in conservative circles in practical ways. 
Y'all do good work. We greatly appreciate it. Get into that curry ketchup, folks. It's real complicated. You take ketchup and you put curry powder in it to taste and mix. Very hard to do. Let it sit a little while. Christopher Barnard, this was great, sir. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. We'll talk again real, real soon. Thanks, man. Yes, sir. back to her tell let's go overseas for a minute india is celebrating uh an anniversary 75 years of india's independence of british rule a uh, big old party over there uh, india of course is an important ally to america and a linchpin in world affairs there is estimates that by as early as maybe next year they will not only be the world's largest democracy they may be the largest populated country on earth surpassing china and of course them and china are frenemies and rivals geopolitically and geographically right close to each other. So this is a very important country to keep an eye on. Anyway, from The Guardian, let's talk about this for just a second. Uh, Modi said the millions of people across the country were commemorating the 75th anniversary of independence by hoisting the orange, white, and green national flags for three days as part of a government campaign to, quote, awaken the spirit of patriotism in every heart. This is a vital country in the world order, something that pays great mind paying attention to. Also, the prime minister is not without his own controversies and criticisms, somebody we need to keep an eye on, even though he is an ally. It's important stuff, keeping a world perspective, even how they affect us locally and nationally here back in America. More her tell right after this. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, we always do something uplifting or good news or some charity work in our last segment. This one strikes really close to home because this is in West Virginia. If you missed the news, there was extensive flash flooding in a specific part of the Upper Canal Valley along U.S. Route 60. I've told you before, my header on my Twitter feed for the longest time was Golly Mountain. This is one of my favorite places to drive in all the world. You drive down Golly Mountain and down through the Upper Canal Valley, down past Glen Ferris the falls, uh, Cathedral Falls and Golly Bridge, all the way down through the industrial areas past Alloy, where my grandfather worked, the big steel mill there, and on down into the valley to get to the capital of Charleston. A lot of little tributaries and hollers up there, like Candleton Hollow that goes up to uh, Mount Olive, the prison. Um, also Campbell's Creek uh, Hollow. And then, of course, in Golly Bridge, you have Paint Creek. There's 
there was tremendous flash flooding in these haulers. Now, apparently and luckily, it doesn't seem like there was a loss of life involved here, but there was a lot of damage. These are rural working class or lower communities, and it's a mess. Uh, Jeff Jenkins of Metro News reported that Candleton Hollow, the water came out of there 12 feet high. In these hollows, those little creeks come up. There's nowhere to go. My dad told me when I talked to him about it, um, when the water came across the railroad tracks and the road at Cathedral Falls and Golly Bridge, it came across so hard, it actually bent up the railroad tracks. Uh, nature has scary power when it gets angry. And when you get five inches of rain in the space of about an hour and a half, this sort of stuff happens. Anyway, uh, let's go to WCHSTV.com. There's some good news coming out of here. West Virginia's doing what we always do in flood, famine, or fire coming together. Uh, scenes of devastation were left after floodwaters consumed an entire neighborhood in Kanawha County. But there are signs of hope as neighbors and local businesses are coming together to clean up a muddy, muddy mess, Jessica Hudson told Eyewitness News as she surveyed the damage spread up and down the Campbell's Creek Drive area of Kanawha County. Many houses in the area are covered in mud and debris after flash flooding caused water to pour in the homes. It just kept coming up and up so fast we didn't even have time to move our cars or anything. We're going to try to clean it up. There's nothing else we can do right now. About two miles southwest of Hudson's home, Danny Bowles, owner of Bowles Boys Barbecue, is collecting supplies to help those who have been forced from their homes by the rushing water. My sister sent me pictures, and the water in this area is the highest it's ever been in my lifetime, the 47-year-old said. The store of water, food, and cleaning supplies is quickly growing. West Virginia State Senator Richard Lindsay, Democratic in all county, was among those dropping off donations. Bowles stepped up, he said. I saw that and I thought, I can bring some water, Lindsay, who represents this district. I've never met Mr. Bowles before today. Never had any of his barbecue. It's very good, by the way. Someone reached out to me to say he's collecting supplies for folks that suffered from the flood. Bowles said he will either bring the donation supplies to a donation center or bring them to those in need himself. The drop-off is 201 Campbell's Creek Drive in Charleston at his restaurant. We're going to link to this uh, story. If you can give to these folks, fine. Again, these are very, very working class and below uh, types of communities. Um, money's going to be an issue in rebuilding these communities. And if you don't know what's involved with a flood, this is soft ground. So this is more mud than water in a lot of cases. It's going to be a hard cleanup. Good on Danny Bowles. Good to see our barbecue brethren doing good work, even in places like Campbell's Creek, Candleton Hollow, and the other areas that have been, have been affected. Pray for them, folks. Give if you can. That'll do it for her. Tell Wherever you and yours are, whether you're up the holler, up yonder, or elsewhere, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. And we will talk to you again tomorrow for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.